it is basically a dim, uh, you know indicative of how pervasive it is because we we don't uh, uh, to give a metaphor it is in the air we are breathing so that is why we tend to take it for granted the normalization of it is what becomes a blind spot for us and that is what we need to start working with and start seeing for us to look at oh this is a problem and something needs to be done about it hi shweta hi shweta hello and welcome to another episode of voice the sasha podcast your go to podcast for all things posh my name is shweta lutra and i will be your special host for this episode why because our guest for this episode is none other than your usual host shweta bhat Shweta is a psychological counselor, posh consultant and trainer and with her experience brings in a whole new dimension to the concept of posh. In this episode, Shweta and I talk about the concept of microaggressions. What are microaggressions? Why is it important to talk about them in the context of posh? How do we deal with them? In this episode, we discuss all these points and more. So without further ado, let's dive in. Hi, I'm Shweta and in this video, I'll introduce you to the concept of microaggressions. What they are, how they impact us and what we can do to deal with them. The psychologist Daryl Sue defined microaggressions as the everyday slights, indignities, put-downs and insults that people from marginalized groups experienced in their day-to-day -day interactions. Microaggressions come in different types and forms. Let's look at some examples. A verbal microaggression is a comment or question that is hurtful or stigmatizing to a certain marginalized group of people. For example, saying you're so smart for a woman. A behavioral microaggression occurs when someone behaves in a way that is hurtful or discriminatory to a certain group of people. An example of a behavioral microaggression would be a manager or a boss ignoring or excluding an employee that they perceive to be gay or they see as too effeminate due to internalized homophobia. An environmental microaggression is when a subtle discrimination occurs within society, within communities, within organizations. For example, hiring policies in organizations that are discriminatory or when the managers in charge of hiring act out on their biases and do not hire people from a certain group even though there are eligible candidates from that group how can microaggressions impact us as individuals and as communities and organizations now microaggressions can be harmful and stressful to the people who experience them experiencing microaggressions over time can lead to lower self esteem in individuals mental health issues physical health issues self harm behaviors and addiction on an organizational level a workplace culture of microaggressions can lead to a feeling of lack of safety amongst employees lower productivity and morale decrease in job satisfaction absenteeism and a higher rate of attrition and challenges to an organization's values of inclusion and diversity Microaggressions are often experienced as a accumulation of interactions that are hurtful or demeaning. For example, in 2016, a study was conducted on people who are from the northeastern states of India. They revealed that 
many of them faced a continuous and cumulative experience of invisibility, invalidation, and a feeling of inferior status in various domains of life due to the microaggressions that they faced on a daily basis. As we can see, this topic is indeed something we need to pay attention to. Now that we know what microaggressions are and what impact they can have, let us look at how we can deal with them. Let's go point by point. What if a microaggression is addressed to you? You might want to consider the following questions. Do you want to address or confront the behavior or the person at that moment? Many people choose to take some time to process their thoughts and feelings and call out that behavior or have a discussion with the person a little later so that they can come from a calm mind and a clear perspective. How do you want to address it? Do you wish to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the person? How likely do you think they are to be open in that conversation? Do you wish to write an email? Do you wish to involve someone like an HR manager so that you feel more supported? While communicating how a microaggression has hurt you or has impacted you to the person who directed it at you, it can be helpful to use I statements. Simply put, I statements place the feeling on ourselves and the accountability of the behavior on the person who acted on it. They're a great way to resolve conflict without blaming and shaming either party because in these situations, blame and shame often do not work. What do you do if you were to witness a microaggression directed at someone? Being an active bystander is very important here. You may want to consider what is the best course of action in that moment. In some cases, it might be to call out the behavior then and there. But in some cases, you might think it wiser to check in with the person who's experienced the microaggression to see how they are doing and what support they wish to have. If you are a senior employee or a manager and this has happened in your team, it might be helpful for you to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the person who communicated the microaggression to help them understand why that behavior was problematic. All those of us who wish to help will definitely benefit from ongoing continuous learning and unlearning when it comes to this topic. Lastly, what do you do if someone comes to you and tells you that you have communicated a microaggression to them and that has hurt them? We are all humans and as such, we all have biases. Some biases we might be aware of and some we might not be aware of. In such cases, it helps to have a growth mindset, which means being open to listening, being open to new perspectives and being open and willing to have our worldviews changed. It might be helpful to listen to the person who has communicated this to you openly and trying not to get defensive. This is easier said than done, I understand. If you find yourself getting worked up or angry or defensive, you may take some time to calm down and continue the conversation at a later time. Do not invalidate the experience of the person. You might have intended the behavior or the comment as a compliment or as a joke. You might not see it as a big deal, but it is clearly something that has impacted them. Commit to doing better. 
change the behavior, understand what about the behavior was problematic and make changes. Seek help if you wish to. Ask someone whom you trust, a trusted colleague or a friend to give you honest feedback about your behavior. All of these action steps that I have detailed here can be termed as what is known as a micro intervention. Just like a microaggression can be a very small uh, or a subtle behavior that can snowball into a huge negative impact, a micro intervention can be small shifts in our behavior, small actions that can snowball into a noticeable positive impact. Micro interventions serve to make the invisible visible. For example, if someone makes a sexist joke, it can be helpful to ask why they thought the joke was funny. What this does is it makes the invisible, the sexism inherent in the joke, visible and facilitates further conversation on that behavior. Microaggressions are not something new. They have been happening around us for years and it's only now recently that we have begun to name them and talk about them. They say language has immense power power to help open us up to new and more inclusive worldviews that impact what we perceive, what we believe and how we act and interact with each other. Let us use this knowledge of microaggressions and microinterventions to create a safer world for all of us. Hi Shweta, we're so excited to talk to you about this, uh, you know, the, the topic of microaggressions, which has become really popular. So, um, Thank you for explaining everything that you did in your video. I do have a few additional questions to ask. So let's begin. Let's start with first talking about what are microaggressions and why is it that we have suddenly started hearing this word being used so often? Yeah. So before I get started, hi Shweta. I hi Shweta. <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, microaggressions, as I explained in the video, are these casual indignities, put downs, uh, degradations that are uh, experienced by those in marginalized groups or communities, often inflicted by those in non-marginalized groups or communities. Now, the, uh, the, the term itself and the concept came about as part of anti-racism work in the 1970s. So the term was coined by uh, a psychiatrist in America, Dr. Chester Pierce, uh, as a way to explain the daily insults and put downs that were experienced by uh, African-American communities in America, uh, inflicted by non-Black people. And over time, uh, especially in the 21st century, this term uh, expanded to include microaggressions behavior, similar behavior that are experienced by other marginalized communities like the LGBTQIA community or people who are differently abled or people who live uh, you know, in poverty, etc. Now in India, the, the research on this topic, uh, the discussion on this topic is still new. It is still in its nascent phase and it is expanding. It is being talked about in terms of people who are from uh, minority religions, for example, or from a certain part of India, for example. So this is where uh, the context of microaggressions comes from. But we are here to talk about microaggressions uh, in the lens of sexual harassment and sexual behavior, sexist behaviors.
So, uh, would you say that microaggressions are intentional or unintentional behaviors? So, in many cases, yes, it can be unintentional. Uh, a lot of times, when people uh, you know, commit microaggressions or communicate microaggressions, it often comes from a lack of awareness of how a certain kind of a comment or a behavior is impacting the other person. Uh, it could, you know, it could be simply because they don't know that it could hurt someone or it, it could be perceived in a certain manner. That doesn't make it okay, but it is important for us to understand that a lot of times people might unintentionally be committing these behaviors. But what I've also seen is that there are times when uh, people continue, even after being called out or educated, continue to uh, behave that way uh, simply because maybe they do not feel it important to take the needs of certain mar marginalized you know, groups into account. Or uh, sadly, because they feel like uh, this is a small issue or this is something that, uh, you know, uh, they should take it in their stride. They might call people weak for calling out the behavior or call people, you're not able to take a joke or mm. you're not you're not able to, you know, you're very uh, easily offended, which is a double sword for the person experiencing the microaggression. Because not only did they experience something that hurt them or that was an indignity to them, but when they did call out, which can take courage, uh, they are being told that in turn they themselves are weak, right? So yes, it can happen unintentionally, but I have seen it uh, happen this way also. Right, interesting. Right. So uh, just to follow on from that, uh, what would you say is the difference between microaggressions and passive aggressions? That's a very good question, and that is something that uh, a lot of people ask. In fact, when I was learning about this, I also sort of asked myself this question, what does it, is there a difference? Now, passive aggression is a kind of a trait or a behavior, and it is something that we all have behaved uh, at least once in our lives. For some of us, it is a behavioral trait. Some of us maybe have a habit of being uh, passive aggressive, which means that we might uh, show that we are not okay with a particular situation or a particular person, not by directly telling them that this is not okay by me, but by indirect methods, uh, like for example, gossiping or speaking behind somebody's back or making sarcastic comments in, instead of directly addressing the issue. A lot of people do, it's, it's a very human thing. Uh, it's not the healthiest way to communicate, but there it is as opposed to a microaggression, which is not individualistic, like passive aggressive behavior, but it is systemic. Um, uh, passive aggression, passive aggressive behavior usually tends to be intentional in the sense that it might be a habit. So I might not know that I'm doing it until I'm in it, but it is something that I have made a choice to do again and again until it becomes a habit with me or a pattern with me, as opposed to a microaggression, which can very often, as I said, come from a unconscious bias or an unconscious uh, unconscious preconceived notion that I might have about a particular group. So uh, since we're talking about microaggressions under the lens that you said of uh, sexual harassment, can you give me some examples of microaggressions of a sexual nature? So microaggressions can occur in all axes of privilege and oppression and marginalization. For example, religion, caste, um, language, class, 
uh, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, all of it, uh, you know, able, ableism, so able-bodiedness, etc. Uh, when it comes to, for example, women and non-binary people, they face a lot of microaggressions in their daily lives. And it is almost normalized. People don't think of it as issues. So when it comes to se of a sexual nature, uh, you know, when we look at, for example, posh complaints, we have to look at whether the behavior was of a sexual, uh, sexual in nature to take it as a complaint of sexual harassment. Now, uh, sexual in nature might depend on a case-by-case -case basis. Every microaggression which is sexist need not be sexual in nature. Let me give you an example. For example, let's say in a workplace, there is a rumor going around that a particular female co-worker is, uh, uh, you know, sleeping her way to the top, which is something that is a very uh, sexist trope that exists in uh, discourses around gender, right? So uh, if there's a rumor going around, let's say somebody makes a comment about, you know, uh, spreading her legs or, you know, she should keep learn to keep her legs together. These are, you know, parts of com com complaints that we have received, right? So then that would come under the ambit of sexual harassment because the behavior, the comment itself is sexual in nature, right? But it stems from a preconceived notion that women often, uh, uh, if women are successful, then they must have done it by gaining uh, or by giving sexual favors, uh, which is again problematic. Or for example, let's say a complainant comes with a sexual harassment complaint to the internal committee. And if internal committees were to ask questions that indicate or you know point towards what the complainant could have done to provoke or attract such behavior, uh, uh, coupled with let's say boys will be boys kind of comments, right? Which is which is slut shaming, victim blaming, so to speak. Those also would come under microaggressions. Or consider very subtle example, uh, which would be something like differentiated language. So we have had complaints where you know uh, people have come to us and told us managers when they're talking to female employees they use dear or uh, sweetheart or uh, darling or you know or those kind of uh, endearments as opposed to when they're speaking to male employees, they use the names, right? Now, not only is this sexist in nature, this is a sexist microaggression. It is also, we take it as complaints of sexual harassment if it occurs over a period of time, depending on how it is perceived by the complainant. How pervasive it is? It is, yeah, it is basically, a, uh, you know, indicative of how pervasive it is because we, we don't, uh, uh, to give a metaphor, it is in the air we are breathing. So that is why we tend to take it for granted, right? So some of the other, uh, for example, sexist uh, uh, microaggressions could include uh, surrounding uh, your language or your behavior around the structure of heteronormativity. Uh, for example, uh, if there is a, a single male colleague and if the manager uh, you know, tries to bond with the male colleague by saying, I'll set you up with a woman, uh, I'll, you know, I'll find you a woman, you know, what kind of a woman do you like, you know, um, without taking into account that that might not be what the person is interested in, which is assuming heteronormativity, basically assuming that everybody is cisgendered and heterosexual, or, you know, using words like, uh, uh, you know, faggot, or don't be, don't, you know, that's so gay, that's so gay is a very typical microaggression. Uh, towards the LGBTQ people, misgendering non-binary people. If they want to be, uh, if their pronouns are they, them, for example, uh, you know, 
calling them over a period of time even especially after being told again and again she her he you know or asking a trans person a trans coworker what are you uh, you know stuff like this uh, these again might stem from and very often they can stem from lack of awareness but lack of awareness i think it is high time that we start talking about uh, awareness talking about uh, learning and unlearning because we can no longer use lack of awareness as a way to dismiss the pain uh, felt by the people who are at the receiving end of these microaggressions yeah and no excellent point um, it's interesting that you've noted the fact that a lot of times microaggressions may not necessarily come from the respondent in a sexual harassment inquiry but the internal committee members themselves who because of this lack of awareness may not realize how they are offending the complainant who is shared yes yeah and that's why when we talk about training the internal committee we also talk about uh, not just you know training them with respect to the process and the law but yeah. also training them with respect to you know we uh, are their unconscious biases uh, how to speak to a complainant you know what kind of questions to ask what kind of questions to avoid uh, this becomes equally crucial most for or gender sensitization sessions uh, that i have attended tend to focus on behavior that is obviously unwelcome to the recipient rather than the subtler forms of sexual harassment in texas comments like you have explained just now uh why why do you think that is well um one is it could be because uh, a lot of times there are subtler uh, instances or microaggressions are not seen as something that is important or as important as um, something that is more severe right in many cases organizations that let's say have a let's say there is a culture of sexual harassment behavior subtle sexual harassment behaviors like let's say sexually colored jokes that are being passed around or uh, many uh, female employees let's say are facing unwanted advances from male employees or one respondent or many uh, people and nobody is talking about it uh, they often originate uh, from microaggressive behavior that goes unchecked because nobody does anything about it when it is a thought then it doesn't make sense for us to talk about redressal it does make sense for us to talk about awareness so even in posh complaints as ic members uh, you know shweta that we we focus not just on punitive measures we focus on rehabilitation we focus on prevention as well uh, so while punitive measures might be necessary some disciplinary measures are necessary to stop people from doing the same again same behavior again we also look at how do we how do we educate employees how do we sensitize employees so that the culture changes into a safer more inclusive space right so similarly with microaggressions it is important for us to understand that when microaggressions are being seen or being done calling them out addressing them either via sensitization or talking to that person or learning about it inviting them to learn about it is very crucial because it can often prevent them escalating into more discriminatory behaviors what are your suggestions on how 
a person, not necessarily someone who's been subjected to it, but mm-hmm. bystanders, organization, how do they deal with this issue? Yeah, uh, there are a lot that people can do. Uh, and the onus as of now, uh, because it is so new, because it is something that is very mindset based, the onus is on each and every one of us. Um, so on an individual level, uh, awareness, reading up, learning and listening, taking in, being willing to being willing to examine our own beliefs. And that is a difficult thing because beliefs, we ho- we, we are we closely hold on to our beliefs and we are loath to let go of our beliefs. And it is a painful process because it means changing uh, our identity in many ways, right? So, but that willingness is important. On a group or a societal or an organizational level, uh, a well thought out, Uh, a sensitization session, a well-conducted sensitization session goes a long way. Another great initiative that can be taken up is listening circles. So listening circles are basically as opposed to awareness sessions, wherein the agenda is to impart awareness or to give information. A listening circle is basically a, a, a circle where employees can be encouraged to share their experiences. So the impact of this is twofold. Number one is employees are uh, in a safe space. They're invited to share uh, if they have been through something that has hurt them. That might they might not necessarily see it as a complaint, maybe, but it is still hurt, right? And when they share in a space of empathy and safety, uh, it is quite healing. And the second advantage is that employees listening to each other. Uh, it can help foster empathy. When I see how a certain kind of behavior that might not affect me uh, has affected another person because of their identity or because of their the marginalized group that they might belong to, for example, it helps me realize uh, how I might be perpetuating that hurt maybe with other people by behaving that way. Right. So it's a great way to change behavior without placing blame. Uh, Another is looking at bystander, good bystander behavior. So as bystanders, uh, there is a tendency and I'm sure we've all seen this, for example, it happens in the road when there's an accident and there's a group of people standing, nobody is doing anything. And uh, what tends to happen is that one person is thinking somebody else will go forward. And everybody tends to think that and hence nobody goes forward, right? And that tends to happen even in workplace workplaces. So looking at uh, training employees to be uh, active bystanders. So these are some things that organizations and individuals can look at to deal with microaggressions or to prevent them from happening. Thank you so much, Meta. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I'm sure that our viewers and our listeners uh, have enjoyed themselves just as much as I did. Thank you so much. Thank you, Shweta. It's been so nice to uh, be on the other side of the the conversation uh, and to talk about this topic, which is very close to my heart and with you. Dear viewers and listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. What did you like about it? What insights are you left with? What questions do you have? Write to us at voice at sashaindia.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our channel 
and follow us on social media for more information. I will hand the podcast back to your regular host for a brand new episode next month. Until then, take care and remember, together we can prevent, protect and progress.